Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. The show will feature ghost folklore, which includes both well-known stories and small personal encounters, all ultimately unverifiable, but all presented by people as true. I will tell you the story, after which I will discuss the elements of the story that I think are particularly interesting. While I don't know when, where, or how you were listening to this, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. This will be my last episode for about two months. I'm going to be taking a brief hiatus to do more research. In the meantime, please enjoy this episode. So in this episode, I have the good fortune to be talking with Laura Fees, who is the executive officer for the USS Hornet Museum. The USS Hornet is an aircraft carrier turned into a museum that is in the San Francisco Bay Area. Visitors are welcome throughout the year, and they do in fact have ghost tours because the aircraft carrier is reputed to be haunted. To start this off, what is your role on the Hornet? What what does an executive officer at a museum do? Yeah, so executive officer is kind of a unique title for museums. It's much more prevalent in the military world, but essentially what the executive officer does here at the USS Hornet Museum is I'm, I'm second in command to the CEO. So officially, I have underneath me multiple departments, kind of all the operations departments, quote unquote, including education programs, uh, actually our, our haunted tours are under my purview officially, under one of my directors, our membership programs, our artifacts and exhibits care, things like that, and many more things. And how did you get into this line of work? So I had an undergraduate degree in art history. And uh, while in Davis, that's where I did my undergraduate work, I was told I could either go into museums or modern galleries with art history degree. I'm like, well, I really like history and not a huge fan of modern art. So here I go into museums and they're like, okay, well, you'll need a master's degree. So I found a master's program at San Francisco State University and uh, specialized in collections care. So artifact care and then joined up on Hornet. So you went from an Aggie to a Gator. I know it's, it's, you know, my, my alma mater is still with Davis, but what can you do? <laughs> I uh, got my bachelor's degree at UC Santa Cruz and my master's at UC Santa Barbara. And people say, oh, you're a gaucho. No, I'm a slug. The undergraduate's where it's at. That's so. right. It's where you spend your formative years. So <laughs> how did you become the executive officer at the Hornet? Essentially, it's a very organic, just rising through the ranks. When I actually started at the Hornet Museum, I started as a a docent, which is a volunteer position, essentially a tour guide throughout the whole ship. And I was doing that in my gap year between undergraduate and graduate school. And then I started graduate school for museum studies. And not to brag, but the docents bragged for me and actually landed me my job, first job at the Hornet, which was as collections manager part-time. And since then, I've worn numerous hats as as the needs of the museum have evolved and grown. I've always had some feelers in the exhibits and artifact care, but have also helped out with the overnight program, education programs. Uh, I still do the graphic design work, most of it to this day. And in that work, I learned all the different departments or most of them, which kind of gave me an an advantage of of continuing to rise to those ranks and helping manage all of them because I've known most of them all. I can relate to that. I was a generalist in my own training and career, and it helped me along. And despite the fact that I always thought it would hold me back. So 
Glad to know that that's not the rarity. That seems to be the norm based on the conversations I've been having with people. Medium-sized museums like the Hornet, it's really nice because you you aren't pigeonholed into one particular subset of life. You're not just like the tapestries person or whatever. Uh, you, you get to work on numerous projects and, and different sort of things, which again, built in my internal resume there. So it was, it was good. Out of curiosity, what does the artifacts program at the museum do? Yeah, so the Hornet Museum has approximately, I would say at this point, 25,000 artifacts, and they're all stored on site. So as per traditional museums, we care for those artifacts in perpetuity, but that takes maintenance. A lot of it's just continuous inventory, making sure those artifacts are right where you expect them to be. That's part of the job, but it's also uh, moving the artifacts when it comes to building exhibits. You see what artifacts are in your collection. You could build narratives for exhibits based off what you have in your collection. You can use your collection in part and then out, uh, source out other artifacts from other nonprofits. Like right now we have a exhibit on display that we're borrowing from the Rosie the Riveter Museum. That's an NPS site. So it's continuous work. It's, it's a lot of fun. My particular joy is in the exhibits because you get to craft narratives and tell stories with the objects themselves, which is cool. Excellent. And how long have you worked on the Hornet? I have been there since 2012. So we are going into my 10th official year, no, 2011. So 11 years. Well, that seems like a fairly quick rising through the ranks at a place like that. It was, it has been, but that's, it's been fun. So Excellent. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, Hornet itself. My understanding is that it was built in 1943, but launched in 1944. Is that correct? That's correct. My docent's going to come out with this, but yes, USS Hornet was one of 24 ships built on the Essex class model. We're an Essex class carrier and we were built specifically to fight in the war of the Essex class. And Hornet was built in 13 months and her keel was laid in 1942 and she was launched in 1943. So was she not put into service until 1944 or where does that 1944 date come from? She was commissioned in 43 Mm -hmm. and then she did fight in World War II up through Mm -hmm. 1945. So she fought for 16 months straight. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that encompasses a good part of 44 and 45 right in there. I was just curious because I know from the website I saw constructed in 1943, but you know, put into use in 1944. And so I was curious as to why there was a delay there. That's probably her official launch date. So ah, there's, okay. there's a commissioning and then there's an actual like, okay, now you're for reals in battle. So the 16 months did encapsulate that 1944 to 1945 part of the war. Uh, she still fought in 59 battles in World War II. So had a good run. The list of battles, as I recall, is on the website. It is quite interesting. I would recommend anybody who's listening to go take a look. Even the first two years of the ship's history is quite fascinating. I would say the first two years were our most exciting parts of our career. Well, there's a second part too. That was very Mm. exciting. But 1944, World War II, that was when we did our active combat. Obviously, the Hornet was active during World War II. I did see references in various sources to it being active up through the Vietnam War. Was it active in conflict through all of that, or did it serve other purposes? No, it served other purposes. So essentially, most of the 50s were on world cruises, which is pretty much as non-combative as the word sounds. It's showing off the American muscle around the world. So we did a lot of, we did a few cruises through Europe and other places in in the Pacific Theater. And we didn't do a lot of fighting. I think we pretty much skipped the Korean War altogether. Then Vietnam War, we did fight in that. We served as anti-submarine warfare, as well as search and rescue. 
Mm-hmm. We were not uh, equipped to, to fire the big planes anymore. Our catapults couldn't handle the 1970s modern, 1960s modern aircraft. So we were relegated to uh, yeah, the anti-submarine aircraft as well as helicopters. Was there much submarine use in uh, Vietnam? Enough that several carriers were designated anti-submarine warfare. The Soviets were you know, around. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I always think of Vietnam as being largely a guerrilla war. So I don't think of submarines, but that makes sense. It was kind of that Cold War. You're in the Pacific Ocean, so you're going to meet some Soviets. Yeah. During World War II, was the Hornet in the Pacific or the Atlantic theater? Exclusively the Pacific theater. Okay. Which, if I recall correctly, most aircraft carriers were. Yes, I uh, believe all of America's aircraft carriers were in the Pacific theater. So, Because oh. uh, aircraft carrier's job is, of course, to be a floating airport. So mm. the Pacific theater being very large and our enemies super far away, we need that kind of middle ground point from which to launch aircraft. That makes a lot of sense. When you can launch from England and then later on from France, you don't really need an aircraft carrier. Yeah, we had a lot of solid allies there in Europe. So that was a huge concern of ours of where we could put a landing strip. So is there anything that makes the Hornet stand out from other aircraft carrier? I mean, obviously you're going to have a lot of affection for it, but is there anything that to an outside observer, they would look at and say, oh, this is really unusual about the Hornet as opposed to other Essex class carriers? So one of the uh, outstanding moments in Hornet's career was not just World War II, but then at the very end of her career, we had 1969 when Hornet was the recovery vessel for the Apollos 11 and 12, which of course were the first and second lunar landings. That was pretty spectacular. Mm-hmm. He's chosen for both was, was a great honor. I would also say as a museum, the Hornet Museum prides itself in being very authentic. Our display mission was how it would have looked if the sailors were just about to leave. We're trying to kind of turn that more into how it would have looked with the sailors still actively there using various interactive technologies, which is kind of a fun evolution in our exhibition philosophy. But so other, other carry museums, they're all excellent. Well, there's five in the United States, five aircraft carry museums, but other ones have, you know, taken one of their aircraft elevators and turned it into an IMAX theater, which is good. That was a fine choice, but uh, we have all three of our aircraft elevators still existing and two of them still works. So that's also pretty cool. That is. I have a feeling my father, would, who is a military aircraft guy, would probably prefer that. So, <laughs> A lot of history fans and all the military fans, they, they really enjoy that. They get to step back in history and uh, experience the ship very, very close to how she would have looked in somewhere between 1944 and 1970. Our design schema changes between rooms. So. so that brings up actually a question I was going to ask, which is, do you try to make it look like it's the 1940s or another period? And it sounds like it depends on the room you're in. It depends on the room. You know, we all have our design preferences. I'm a fan of the World War II aesthetic. So if I can deck the room out like it would have looked in World War II, I'll probably do that just for personal choice. But some of the spaces uh, actually change their function entirely between uh, World War II and uh, 1970. Hornet actually went through several modifications and modernizations and actually went from like a straight deck carrier to an angled deck carrier. And all those several of the rooms were completely refurbished and, and changed their mission. So. so why was the Hornet decommissioned? Was it simply that it was no longer up to the standards that were needed or were there other reasons? Its functionality had kind of somewhat fallen into obsolescence. Also, um, you had had several classes, newer classes of aircraft carrier 
And you really start to notice when you're on a carrier that was built for World War II, when you're in 1970 and you're like, mm, it's, it's, it's not the best carrier to be on. It functioned just fine. It's not like it got damaged or anything like that. It was just, uh, it couldn't do what the Navy needed it to do anymore. Being an aircraft carrier that can only launch helicopters was only so useful for so long. Who operates the Hornet as a museum and what is its mission as a museum? Hornet is actually, as as virtually all historic ships, is actually on loan to us from the Navy. It's still an active loan. They actually come annually to do a Navy inspection to make sure that we are taking care of their giant ship for them. But it is managed by the Aircraft Carrier Hornet Foundation, which is the fancy name that does business as the USS Hornet Museum. We are a 501c3 foundation. It's a nonprofit, like most museums. And our mission is fairly simple. It's that our mission is to utilize USS Hornet and the collections, exhibits, and educational programming to promote awareness and understanding of history, science, technology, and service. We still honor its military background, but really in her retirement, we are using Hornet as an educational platform, which is very fun when you have a piece of technology that represents World War II to 1970, which in itself is an extraordinary period of technological innovations. But both periods are, especially World War II, tech is is very rudimentary, I would say, in comparison to the tech that we have now. But it's such an awesome, tangible place for kids to come and, and learn about the basics of STEM theory. And then they can apply it towards present and future tech. But here on, on Hornet, it's just a great place to get started on that kind of STEM information. It's interesting that it seems to span the period from when the notion that you might use rockets to get to space was considered, you know, just something that some nutty people in California and Germany seem to think to, hey, we're going to go pick up the astronauts that just came back from the moon. Absolutely. One of uh, actually a notable piece of technology on Hornet is a dead reckoning tracer, which is an analog computer from World War II. And it's, uh, you know, fairly big. I'm trying to think of a, a modern equivalent, maybe the size of an armchair. And it is an analog computer that's a GPS without the S but it's all gears and you have to input longitude and latitude. But this was a representative of the, the pinnacle of technology during World War II. Like that was the secret we have to keep from all our, our probably access and allies. And now nowadays, of course, it's all GPS actually includes satellites, but that's part of Hornet's career. That's kind of fun too, because Hornet doesn't have crawl spaces. So each time a new piece of technology was introduced to the ship, we basically had to staple it onto the ceiling. Uh, so there's some areas <laughs> where the headspace is kind of like, because there's like new cabling down there and they, they weren't expecting when that during World War II to have to worry about guidance computers. So it makes me think of a uh, tour my wife and I did of a submarine that's been turned into a museum in Portland. Uh, I'm, I'm 6'2". There were rooms that it was really difficult for me to get in and out of. So. so you wanted to be on an aircraft carrier during World War II. The aircraft carrier, every man got a bed and submarines, they engaged what's called hot bunking. <laughs> Um, that's, that's not miserable, but aircraft carriers, you'd stretch your arms out. Pretty cool. You could always go up above deck too. Yeah. The flight deck was, was fun. Uh, we have a lot of cool photos from our collection of guys just sunbathing. Uh, so, so I guess we should move on to the ghost stories because I know that that's primarily what I talk about here. Are there any particular stories about the Hornet that you find interesting or compelling? So we have a lot and many of them are compartment focused. You know, there's, there's ghosts who are residual and a few who are in intelligent spirits. We have stories of them helping 
volunteers and, and crew. Um, and we have stories of them pranking volunteers and crew. So there's like a story of one security guy who was brand new to the job. And our, our ship is a labyrinth. It's literally the size of a sideways skyscraper. Uh, it's 19 stories tall and, and just under 900 feet long. And we had a, a new security guy coming in and he'd gotten himself kind of lost in one of our spaces, the O2 level. And while he was around, it turned a corner and there was a figure standing there dressed in whites. And he thought it was just kind of a, another volunteer because some of our volunteers do dress up. And the, the figure just pointed and the security guard followed the point. And sure enough, there was a ladder and he got down on his way at the top of the ladder. He turned back to say thanks. And of course, the figure was gone. No sign of anyone. No one knew. No one was supposed to be up there, that kind of thing. So we have that kind of helpful ghost. And then we have ghosts who will prank you, kind of spook you here and there. Uh, some of my favorite stories actually come from, we occasionally host army reservists and other reservists. They have their two-week training and uh, we have 600 beds. So sometimes we have long-term stays and we tend to get a lot of ghost stories coming out of the army because uh, if you follow the, the logic, Navy has to prank army. It's Those are rules. Those are firm rules that transcend all planes of existence. So I, it was about four years ago, the last time we had army reservists, they're coming back this coming year, but I would get stories in the morning of, I was using the ladder and someone grabbed my ankle and I almost tripped. We have one particularly stunning story that's a little bit more intimate, which was fascinating. And I, I was helping with this overnight uh, accommodation. So I was the one who often got the ghost stories the, the morning after, but there was this uh, group of four army reservists and they were hanging out on what's known as our fan tail, which has a great view of the city skyline, San Francisco city skyline. It's kind of outdoors. It's a place where you could smoke back in the day. Can't anymore. And the four of them were just hanging out there. And then one of the four just stands up, walks back into the ship. Didn't say anything. So his buddies you know, look at each other and then follow after him. And it's late in the evening at this point there, the whole army reserve group is there by themselves uh, in the night, just spending the night. So the lights are mostly out. So the three other army reservists who are part of this little group follow the one who had just stood up and walked away. They followed him down a ladder into a, a dark passageway. And that guy in the front was just navigating his way through the dark without any sort of light, which is very difficult to do. And the three other guys were a little bit concerned about this point, follow him, follow him. And they finally find him stopped and sitting on a bench that was the waiting room for sick bay. And when they find him, he's crying and sitting there and just crying in, in the dark. And, you know, they kind of poke at each other and, and one of them gets the courage up to go sit next to him and be like, hey, buddy, what's, what's going on? You okay? And I guess he kind of snapped out of it and didn't know how he had gotten down there. So that was kind of an interesting moment where it wasn't pranking. It was more like there was some spirit that had found enough familiarity in this one soldier to kind of take over him for a short moment, just to kind of maybe relive some bad moment of having to go report to sick bay for one thing or another. So that was kind of an interesting twist on the old pranking. It was much more early intimate. So. And did the uh, soldier in question have any recollection at all about why he was there? Not as far as they reported the morning after. So he just hmm. kind of came to and didn't quite recall how he stumbled through there in the dark. Didn't, didn't know any kind of emotion or feeling about what he was feeling. Just kind of shook it off. That's one of my favorite stories, I think, because it kind of expresses a different sort of personality from our resident ghosts. 
Right. It's not playful, but it still seems very much in line with the nature of the site. Mm -hmm. And you said that you have some which are just sort of replays of people going about their daily duties as well. Yeah. So we'll have figures seen or lights, orbs, if you will, just kind of going up and down ladders that kind of trapped in that cycle of just going up and down from their sleeping compartment down to their workspace and vice versa. We have one fun story of a a rogue bathroom ghost, real killer. (laughs) someone using the facilities and then no one will be there. So that's, but it's, it's not interacting with you. Conversely, we have an intelligent ghost who found the bathroom once head. And of course, when the ship was in service, it was hundred percent men. One of the heads of course have been semi-transformed some of them into women's bathrooms, just because we have now women and men coming aboard. Apparently one of the women live aboard crew members So a staff person was using the women's head and she came out of the stall to see a sailor in casual uh, dungarees. And he looked very startled, kind of tipped his little Dixie cup hat and like got out of there real quick. And then she went to look for him. And of course, no one there. So the sailor wasn't expecting a woman in the head (laughs) because they wouldn't know to expect that. Well, that follows. (laughs) So prior to becoming a museum, did the Hornet have a reputation for being haunted? There were a few stories. Hornet was pretty much left abandoned for about 30 years of its lifespan. From 1970, when it was decommissioned, it was almost immediately mothballed, um, which is basically when they just tie it to a pier and let it rot. And there are several mothball fleets around the United States. And in this particular one, it was with mothballed in Bremerton right up until 1994. So, you know, there was some maintenance done at that point. I think there were a few ghost stories that came out of then. But of course, we were really able to capture more when there were just more people around, which is when it would have been taken from the mothball fleet down the West Coast. It was actually designated to be scrapped, to be turned into razor blades, as they like to say. But it was saved last minute by the commanding officer of Naval Air Station Alameda back when it was still in existence. NAS Alameda was closing. The commanding officer, Captain Jim Dodge, was looking for a centerpiece for the closing ceremonies. And coincidentally, USS Hornet was being towed through the bay to be scrapped at Hunter's Point. And Captain Dodge kind of just commandeered it from the scrappers, said, I'm going to borrow this. And they they said, I don't know how much choice they had, but they let him borrow it. And in that time it was being borrowed, the foundation was founded and it was turned into a museum. The project plan was written up and they they got sponsorships and there you go. We had to to repay the scrappers back. They didn't lose out on any money. (laughs) During that initial restoration period is I think when our our ghost stories kind of took off. So while the ship was being restored for use as a museum, that's when a lot of the stories seem to take off? Yeah, it's where the stories mostly start. We have vague recollection. There's there's kind of echoes of story ghost stories from before then, but nothing tangible that I can recall. But we have the real firm ghost stories start during that restoration period. So there's there's one where you know we have two volunteers who are painting and scraping and painting and scraping in one of our rooms, the anchor room, and they're on a very small catwalk and they feel like they're being watched. So they they turn around. One of them turns around and he sees a, a sailor on the catwalk across the way and he's well just a dark shape rather, but two darker spots where the eyes should be. So he turns back to his buddy and like, oh, I just saw it look behind us. And by the time that his buddy turns around, it's there's no one there. And his buddy says, I, I think your paint respirator mask might not be on tight enough. Let's just keep going. <laughs> so they're painting and scraping and painting and scraping. And he feels like he's being watched again. And he nudges his buddy this time. He's thinking ahead. And they, they turn. And now there's two shadowy figures on the catwalk across the way, um, two dark spots where the eyes should be. And they watch as the shadowy figures 
straighten up and walk and go through the walls into a sleeping compartment. And the, the place where they went through the walls was where an original door would have been in 1944. That was since moved during various remodels. So, so that's one of the kind of earlier ghost stories we get. We also have the, the pranksters coming out where we have people, again, restoration crew who are working on the restoration projects and they had their, their bucket of tools. They went to go paint something. When they come back, half the tools are gone and they, they look around. They were in that room alone and then they kind of let, let it go for a few hours, but then they come back, still, still nothing there. And they're like, uh, at that point, we knew it was, we knew it was haunted. So the restoration crew kind of says to the air, you know, I, I really need to do this work. So if you could just return my tools to me, that would be great. Thank you. They let the bucket alone for about a minute or two, come back and the tools are back in their place. So out of curiosity, do you, were the stories that you found during reconstruction of the ship or even prior to that in any way really different than those that started to appear when it became a museum? Not really. The ghost stories that's kind of in the, the vibes of them that happened during the restoration work were of similar moods to the ones that are still told today in terms of kind of the ghosts have a few personalities. And those have been kind of steady. What has kind of grown more out of it is the humanization of them. Like those personalities have kind of been fully formed. It's it's went from more stories about just kind of shadow figures watching you and to more of them being the pranksters or the helpers or the scarers, the ankle grabbers, if you're the army. So they went from simply being, you're going to see a thing over there too. You may or may not see a thing over there, but if you do, here's what it's likely to do because this one is a jerk or this one's really helpful to help you get out of the uh, maze that is this deck. Exactly. So you're, you're going to wind up facing some sort of attitude. It just depends which one. And of course, uh, when we, we sometimes tell our overnight kiddos, the youth groups come, we come the ghost stories. I always say it's to keep them in bed. <laughs> Once we get them into bed, it come little ghost stories. But ultimately, we usually end the ghost stories with a conversation about, hey, these ghosts are uh, average age was 19. So you imagine these, these sailors, uh, 19-year-old kids, and uh, that's going to be everything that a 19-year-old kid has the capacity to be. They're not evil. We don't have any evil ghosts, but they can be jerks or they can be nice uh, depending on their mood. And we also always tell the kids, you know, if, if you really don't want to be bothered, just just say it. You have to say it out loud. Um, I don't want to be bothered. And then they respect that because again, they're not evil. They're just sailors hanging around. So, Are there any specific individuals that people claim to have encountered, like names that they associate with it? Or is it just simply, yeah, we've got the mischievous one and the stoic one and the one that'll point you in the right direction. We do have a few named ones. And that's kind of an interesting thing because we have our, our ghost tours that we do, but these are, are led by ghost investigators who are, who are very serious about their craft and they're part of our crew. And some of them do on their own, like when they're back in their stateroom and, and tucking in for the night, they will pull out their K2s or their other devices and they will have one-on-one conversations with spirits. And there's been stories of a few of them, you know, going through the alphabet, like it does your name start with A, does your name start with B? And so they've gotten to like, do your name start with S and the little K2 meter lights up. So they, they did that until they found that the ghost's name was apparently Steve, that sort of thing. So some of our investigator, investigators really have 
honed in on individual ghosts. I think we always say we have approximately you know, somewhere around 200 ish, give or take. But some of them, some of them have been specifically identified. But these are also the ones who tend to hang out with individual ghost investigators, like in their staterooms, and have conversations with them versus those who are kind of just wandering the decks. So you might have Steve wandering the deck, but he's not going to identify himself as Steve until he has asked specifically. <laughs> this brings to mind two questions. One of which is based on a conversation and some writings by an anthropologist named Michelle Hanks, who does ethnographic work with ghost hunters. One of the things that she brought up, and I'm curious as to whether or not you've observed this, was with the groups she works with, primarily in England, a lot of them will identify various different ghosts in a particular area. But if you have, say, three different groups of ghost hunters come in, those three different groups will all encounter completely different ghosts. There's very little to no overlap. Do you see that? Or do you see these groups encountering the same spirits, you know, that the others do? We have a, a fairly homogenous ghost investor group. So, you know, they have been with us, some of them 10, 15 years predate me in my service here at the Hornet Museum. So the legends kind of move from one ghost investigator to another. So usually you know, it, it stops being, I'm going to go through the whole alphabet and just turns into, are you Steve? And the light will blink on. I'm like, I, I've got Steve. We know Steve. So it's it's kind of, once one's been identified, that's kind of, that's his name. That's who he is. You know, there, we also have theoretically a lot of ghosts. So yeah. we have a lot of people who are, have been identified. We have, for example, and a few are more uh, visitors, but still often visit like we have a story about uh, Jocko Clark who was an admiral and he's not a permanent residence but we've had investigators and people who are on the tours encounter him in the admiral's import cabin because he was there during World War II and I think there's still debate if that's just like a residual of Jocko Clark and you just kind of can find that once in a while or if there's some sort of intelligent spirit just kind of visiting once in a while but we have those are here temporarily or kind of half here. But it sounds like you've got a fairly steady group of ghost investigators who come through. So you've got some institutional knowledge and ideas that tend to be part of that group at this point. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. They've built out their own uh, their own lore, if you will. And they have individual relationships with these spirits, a lot of them, because um, mm -hmm. our ghost investigators, are our, our facilities allow our investigators to, to, to sleep in the same place where they do their tours. So they have time and opportunity to really deepen those bonds with the ghosts that they meet. So it's probably wildly impractical, but my inner mad scientist wants to like go get a bunch of unrelated groups and bring them in and see what they'd find. That's this, the sort of person I am. Oh, that'd be kind of an interesting experiment. I like it. The other question that I had is uh, there's a historian named Tia Miles who works primarily on the history of slavery in the South. She did a book on ghost tourism in Southern plantations. And one of the things that she found was that in a lot of locations, either the people that people were claiming to encounter could not be confirmed to have been in that location, or they were very clearly had different traits than the historical person would. Have you found anything like that? Or is what the investigator has been finding fairly consistent with the records that you have? It's fairly consistent. We would have had 3,000 sailors or 3,500 sailors on board at any given year. So it's, you know, how many Steves were on board during World War II? Right. A lot, probably several. As a mat, I can understand. Yeah. So it's, 
it's one of those things and World War II, 1940s is not so foreign that any behaviors would be unexpected or expected rather. We don't have any kind of as many things of anachronisms mm-hmm. as I would imagine one one might find if you're talking with a Southern plantation history that goes back much farther. We, we also think that the ghosts who are intelligent are intelligent and they've been absorbing culture as it's evolved. Uh, we have things like we found out they they like Westerns. They like it when we put Westerns on. Uh, and they, I think they appreciate a little, a cigarette and a little pour of alcohol left out once in a while, but they also become more active when we have parties on board and we get some music going. Uh, it doesn't seem to care what kind of music they'll come out just to see what the party is because they're probably pretty bored and just want to see what's going on and, and want to watch the dance. Cause that's pretty cool still, even for these guys, cause they're 19 year old kids. So you made a comment about a pour of alcohol and a cigarette. Do people actually leave that out? Uh, when you really want to bribe the ghost, you could set up your own little <laughs> mini altar and be like, Hey guys, can you uh, be cool for a little bit? Just, uh, just the weekend. I, I, I'm depending on this. Here you go. I'm going to distract you with some alcohol and cigarettes. <laughs> well, that's fascinating because it's very similar to the way that, you know, people have for a long time tried to appease the spirits. I just finished reading a book recently about uh, Mesopotamian ghost beliefs and bribing either them or the gods who deal with them with food and drink was a big part of how you dealt with them. <laughs> And sometimes we'll put out items like that. We'll, we'll play some music. You know, I've got some World War II songs on my phone specifically for if I ever help out on the ghost hunts. Uh, this is kind of more of the trigger objects, though. You're just trying to mm-hmm. draw their attention towards you to maybe come and interact with you, trying to give some familiarity like, hey, I've got I've got music that you like. You mentioned earlier that a lot of the stories seem to have evolved over time and that the ghosts have become more fleshed out. They've ceased to simply be that misty form that's watching you while you work and have developed a personality. Have you noticed the stories change in any other ways in the 11 years that you've been on the Hornet or have other people who've worked on the Hornet observed that? Yeah. I mean, they have kind of evolved, you know, we never had too many stories of them being like legitimately scary, Mm -hmm. Um, but you certainly don't see that in any sense really anymore. They're not scary. They're, they're people who are dead um, these days. So we, we really treat them, you know, where we used to treat them as ghosts, which we still acknowledge they're, they are dead, they're ghosts, but more of the kind of this incorporeal misty form. Um, now we're like, okay, they're ghosts, but these guys are individual personalities and individual people. So we, we've kind of, the stories have really gone towards that individualization and that kind of giving them agency, giving them motivations and much less about just there are uh, misty figures that that yeah watch you and go up and down ladders. Uh, now the stories are much more narrative heavy, I guess you could say. So how do the ghost stories and the ghost tours fit the educational mission of the museum? It's both fun, but also I'm going to stand on my soapbox a little bit here. <laughs> we find that ghost stories are a great gateway drug, if you will, into history. I think that's why one of the reasons I love ghost stories so much. It's It's kind of that dramatized history lesson. You know, you you get to the story of World War II sailor. Well, it's going to, you're going to have to learn what happened to that World War II sailor. Why is he here? Well, he he died serving in World War II. Um, so you get that little injection of, of history lesson as you learn about a spooky story about a ghost. So it, it's not more relevant than other histories, but it's much less dry. It's much more consumable for, for people who come aboard. So um, it also humanizes the past by focusing less on the battle stats and focusing more on the you know the individual one or two guys who unfortunately perished in this battle due to strafe fire. Like, oh, you're right, there are people there who actually got hurt 
during this battle. I, I assume a lot of, well, I know a lot of museums do ghost stories because uh, again, it's that kind of clickbait way to attract people sure. to history. So one of the things I like about the materials I've been reading is that they're like myself, they're not really particularly concerned with, is the story true or is it not true, but rather how does this fit in socially with the people who go to these places, but also how does it function within the realm of, you know, the museum as an educational facility. And so I've just found a lot of that reading to be pretty fascinating. Uh, it is interesting. And, and we've been open just long enough to see peaks and trends about the ghost tourism ourselves. And mm -hmm. actually my uh, director who hosts the programs, Heidi, has an interesting theory about ghost tourism um, in that it spikes during period of crises and uncertainty because people start clinging to that idea of like the afterlife and hey something is is there's more just the world than this one so uh, she's kind of it well she is a she has a master's in history herself and she's saying like you know in the 20s uh spiritualism popped up uh, it kind of kept going through the great depression we had spiritualism the turn of the century as well but it seems to kind of coincide directly with periods of, of stress in in the world it seems to go on the rise whenever we have issues in the world. <laughs> I believe spiritualism really began in Europe around the time of what's called the year of little revolutions in 1848. But in the US, it became really well established during and immediately following the Civil War, had a rise again in both Europe and the US during and in the aftermath of World War One, as you noted, the 1920s. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of risen and fallen uh, at various different points. I Director Heidi's theory is that it's a coping mechanism, some human need as a coping mechanism to talk about ghosts and, and what comes after. The, this begs the question of with a lot of the major political and social people we've been having over the last uh, several years, have you seen a spike? We've been lucky to kind of ride a wave, but definitely we kind of notice it more, um, less for attendance for our programs and more for inquiries of filmings on board. So people like YouTubers, when we kind of see those spikes, it's it's often you can kind of see trends. And when we kind of get those hits of kind of the more formal inquiries, I guess when a lot of death is around you, you start thinking about it more. <laughs> so. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I did know that a lot of historians have tracked the rise and fall of spiritualism with periods of crisis, but you know, I didn't necessarily think of that being a uh, thing that would follow general ghost stories. Although, I mean, you know, I say that, but it was in the aftermath of World War II that Colonial Williamsburg as a project began. And the fellow who really pushed for that did so because he believed it would be something that the spirits of the area would find, you know, pleasing to them. I recently interviewed a, a historian named Elena Pirock, who works primarily in Colonial Williamsburg. And something that she brought up was that the people who began the restoration of Williamsburg did talk about ghosts quite often. And when the ghost talk faded away, they had to come up with stand-ins. First, it was a film then it was actors who would come in and portray the roles. And now that ghost tourism's become more common again, they're once again using ghost stories. And it does seem to help people to fix the place in their minds as a human place, as opposed to some sort of tableau that you can't touch. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of the, um, doing those ghost tours, it's kind of very similar to our upcoming exhibition philosophy, which is to bring the place to life. And you just said you, you, you literally inject humans back into the scene. Some of our exhibit goals are to set up projections where we have you know, clearly uh, actors who are just kind of in the in a room doing the thing. But in theory, that's kind of the very same thing that our ghost stories do in, in part. So it's kind of a low tech way mm -hmm. of bringing life back into place. 
Do you feel that the uh, addition of ghost tourism has been beneficial to the museum in carrying out that educational mission? Or I could see ways that it could potentially undermine it because there's ways now to know the past that have nothing to do with studying history or studying the artifacts of history. And I could see how that might undermine a educational mission, but at the same time, it could flesh out the people and give you a better understanding of what life might have actually been like rather than it being this sterile thing that you can look but don't touch with. Do you think that the addition of ghosts has been more beneficial or? I think it's dual faceted. I mean, obviously talking about ghosts and and how hard you say that you really believe in ghosts, Mm -hmm. that kind of does, is semi-contradictory from that scientific mindset. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that the ghost stories bring about a different mood that's once again approachable to such a, a different type of person uh, today. So like the visitors, you know, we might get visitors who would have never come to USS Hornet, Sierra and Space Museum, if not for our history mystery tour. Mm -hmm. But once they do that history mystery tour, they find out that the history itself is actually interesting uh, beyond just the spooky ghosts that inhabit the past. So they'll come back and and learn more about the history. Um, We often see guests who have done that tour coming back for different different events after that. From a strictly kind of mercenary attitude, (laughs) I would say that, you know, for all museums, ghost tours help our educational mission by helping to fund it. So that's also a a truth. But more philosophically, I I think that they are different, but not incompatible in in terms of of mission. I think that you have to respect those people who wholly believe in ghosts and for Mm -hmm. whom this is actual they, they come to interact with our spirits. And that's, that's wonderful. I, I love believing that we are haunted um, with actual, with ghosts. At the same time, you have to make a, create a space for those who uh, don't need to hear about ghosts or don't want to. So, but I think we can meet the needs of most of that pretty well without too much. You can, you can approach our ghost tours as a believer or they're not and still have a nice time. So <laughs> Do you get a rough idea of a lot of people I know who don't believe in ghosts still love ghost tours? And of course, a lot of people who genuinely believe in ghosts love ghost tours as well. Uh, Do you get an idea of what the breakdown of the participants you get are? We don't really do stats on, you know, who raise your hand if you're a believer, but I would say it's probably, you know, roughly 50 50. 50 definitely believe, and 50 are just there for a good time. Mm -hmm. Because, like you just said, even people who don't believe in ghosts, there is something inescapably entertaining about ghost stories. Yes. It makes me think also about, uh, again, Michelle Hanks' ethnography of ghost tourism. And one thing she observed, I'm curious as to whether or not you've seen anything like this, is there are people who will go to some of these events because they're not sure if they believe and they're hoping that they'll see something that'll prove one way or another to them. Do you see any of that? We do see that. I mean, we have stories of people who come aboard, quote unquote, as skeptics and um, see something. What we always tell people on ghost tours when they come is if you don't want to see anything, like you're just like, "Mm -mm, ghosts don't exist. I literally don't believe in ghosts. You're not going to see anything, most most likely. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, anything that you do seek, I'm sure your mind can spin it off with some scientific explanation one way or another. Then we have those who are kind of on the fence. We're like, well, I, I'm not sure if I believe, like you just said, but I'm, I'm willing to give a ghost tour a shot and they will find something like a, a swinging chain closing off another area or hearing footsteps or, you know, the K2 meter goes off. I've been on ghost tours where the K2 meter or the flashlights, we have flashlight, you know, we do the thing where you turn the flashlight just barely so it 
oh, turns it off. Right. So that if it heats up and then cools down and again, the. Um, yeah, it's a, you have to take a mag light, well, a twisty one. Yeah. And you have to twist it so it's just not connected, but it's very simple, just like attack and it, it the light flashes on. Right. And I'll admit, I've been on ghost tours where that flashlight is having a conversation with you. Mm-hmm. Like it's okay. not just you making things up. It is answering yes or no questions and turning on and off in appropriate times to be actually having a conversation. So there was one time I was uh, shadowing a, a ghost investigation team and they were in the Admiral's import cabin, which if we had an Admiral on board, that's where he would go while the ship was at port. And we uh, had the flashlight on the big table, the big conference room table. And it went on and then off. And we had a conversation with the spirit in the room and found out it was probably likely a, um, a nervous young aide, if you will. No, no one important. Um, and he seemed even nervous to come into the room while there was people at the conference room table because he was not, you know, you're not supposed to come in if they're having a meeting. You're just probably there to serve the coffee or take care of things like that. Some supply port, supply core guy. But and, and that was fun. He kind of identified himself. We had to, we moved the, the flashlight closer to the doorway and he, and the flashlight was much more uh, animated when we took it away from the, the table. So it's uh, good. You can have a lot of neat interactions that way. And, and those kind of moments are when you hear the, the soft gasps from the crowd and the mm-hmm. kind of little murmurs of like, did you see that? And like, oh my God, that kind of thing. So. And from what you just said, it sounds like you've had some experiences yourself on the uh, ship. I have, I have not, not nothing extraordinary. And I put that down to the fact that when I first joined on the Hornet, of course, told I was haunted, but also told that if you speak aloud, um, they will respect that. So on my first year there, I said that you can hang around me. Don't care. But if you scare me, mm-mm, I'm not, not about that. So um, I've never been scared, but I have heard you know, footsteps in the passageway while I'm working up in the all but abandoned O2 level. We have some artifact storage up there. And of course you're working on artifact inventory and then you know, hear the footsteps uh, going down the hallway and no one's there and hear occasional murmurings and whatnot and see the flashlights turning on and off and the K2 meters going on and off when there's no real reason they should be going on and off. So otherwise. I've got to imagine that uh, being a ghost on the ship you were stationed on has got to be a bit like if I die and come back and haunt my old office building and just sounds horribly boring. Well, yes and no. The ship was a city at sea. Mm-hmm. So in World War II, for example, these young fellas were on this ship for 16 months straight. Like it was their home. It was their place of comfort, the place they were defending. So, and, and they had such kind of those bonds of camaraderie. If if there were any place where one's soul would be imprinted upon the place you were living, it would probably be a, a military place and, and, and a ship, especially, because that's where you live. That's where you slept. That's where you work. You could not escape the ship. That's where you you did everything. So, well, and you've got a bunch of 18 to 20 year olds. I guess it's sort of like the haunted college. Yes. It always changes people's perspectives when you kind of explain the demographics of the ghosts we're working with primarily. Out of curiosity, have you had anybody who was stationed on the um, Hornet during the time that it was in use uh, come visit while you've been at the museum? We have. Of course, there is a unfortunately dwindling population of those who served during World Certainly. War II. But we have had them. Right now, I think our oldest uh, docents who served on the ship are from the Korean War you know, or era. We have a few who were aboard during the Apollo recovery. But um, yeah, like 10 years ago, we had a, a small handful that were from World War II. Uh, we have a collection of oral histories that preserve their, as many of their memories as we were able to capture before they passed. When you have docents who served on the aircraft carrier, is that part of the mission of the museum to collect oral histories and things of that sort? 
Definitely. Well, these guys are themselves primary resources. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they've literally lived and served on this ship. So their stories are essential to our to our mission and capturing them. So part of our collection are those oral histories. And it's a digital native collection, but like any sort of native group or whatnot, uh, they, they live, that's, that's their history. That's their story, which is also interesting having a museum where you have active participants of that space, actually being able to tell their own stories in real time. It's kind of a neat thing we're able to have. My primary work is as an archaeologist. And on occasion, I will get to work on a site where the grandchildren of the people who lived there can come and tell me about their grandparents, which is always fantastic. But I can imagine that it's got to be much better to actually talk directly with the person. Oh, it's it's amazing. Like we have docents who can be like, let me show you where I slept when I worked <laughs> here. So they, they'll take you to their exact bunk. They'll open up the locker, be like, that's my name right there. That's my little graffiti right there. I did that. Um, and you're imagining these guys as 19, 20, 24 year old pilots, maybe and living, actually living on the ship in that bed. One of the things that I found myself really curious about as I was thinking about this uh, ship is, are you familiar with the concept of legend tripping? No, but I'm interested. (laughs) I can assure you, you've heard of this. You may just not have heard the term, but it's when people usually teenagers, but you know, I've been known to do it and I'm in, you know, the second half of my forties, they go to a place that's allegedly haunted mm-hmm. in order to see what they can see. Ah. And very often it's a way of, for people to kind of write themselves into the legend, interact with the legend. But in order to do that, the place has to be publicly accessible, sometimes not necessarily legally publicly accessible, but a place you can get to. And that seems to have a pretty big impact on the way that folklore develops. On the other hand, you've got something where you really have near complete control over how people get on and off. So that would seem to prohibit. Yes. One of the nice things about being a warship is you mm-hmm. have defensive yeah. mechanisms. So yeah, I mean, the only access points onto our ship are our three brows, our gangways, and we lock those up at night. So, I mean, while there's always a risk of a break-in, you know, you could you could drill out the lock, I suppose. Um, we're not as much of a risk of rogue teenage band shatters window to enter premises. Like, uh-uh, we're, we're floating on the water three of the access points. Otherwise, uh, I guess you just have to do a ghost tour like anyone else. Uh, you know, we have had uh, YouTubers come on and do kind of private ghost investigations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you want to film yourself, uh, you could have the run of the ship at night as you uh, and and one security, because that's that's the rules. Uh, you have to have one security guard, but you can have your own individual experience if you want to, but it has to be legitimate. And we'll know about it. What I'm wondering is, do you think that that may influence some of the types of stories that do get told about the Hornet? I mean, it seems like you might get less fantastic or frightening stories simply because, you know, you don't have a bunch of teenagers going out for a thrill at night. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. There's no teenagers getting spooked off a bridge or whatnot here on the Hornet. It's it's all, all natural. But we do get actually some interesting crew stories because, of course, they're here most of all. I would say we have the grumpiest of our ghosts, who's not quite evil, but bridging on it, just because he's really nasty. It sounds like my kind of ghost. The older I get, the grumpier I am. <laughs> well, we have this one room, it's called Junior Officer's Birthing, and it's it's about 26 bunk beds in a room. It's where the lowliest of officers would have been, probably pilots. And we have Bunk 11, the Bunk 11 ghost. He has no name. He is the Bunk 11 ghost. Junior officer's birthing is where our overnight crew, our staffing sleeps at night because it's nicer beds. And anything on bunk 11 is thrown off by the next morning. Bunk 11 ghost is 
very, very possessive over that bunk 11. So we have stories of people waking up at 2 a.m. to their alarm clock being shattered against the side of the wall because they put it on bunk 11. If you sleep on, attempt to sleep on bunk 11, um, you will have the sensation maybe of someone just lying on top of you. If they can't, if he can't kick you out, he's just going to go ahead and lie straight on top of you because that's still his bed. So you'll feel just that, that pressure of unknown weight upon you. Uh, we have a story, a particular story about how two of our young staff members were sleeping in the bunk beds across from bunk 11. And one of them woke up you know, 1, 2 a.m. And he looks across the room and in the dark, but in the, the dark, he sees a darker dark uh, shadow against the wall. It looks enough of a person that he actually says, what, what are you doing up? John, what are you doing up? And of course, John answers from the bunk below. I'm like, I, I, I'm, I'm in my bed. What are you talking about? We tell the story about bunk 11 for our ghost stories when we put the youth groups uh, through our overnight program. That's the spooky one. And that space happens to be right next to the place where we tell the ghost stories. So we have, we had once a little cub scout who just wanted to go take his photo next to bunk 11. His mom's like, oh, go stand next to bunk 11. And she got her camera out and uh, each bunk next to it has a medicine cabinet, a little storage cabinet. And of course there's the, the mirror there. So mom takes a picture. Kid happens to be right underneath the, the mirrored medicine cabinet right next to bunk 11. And then when she looks at the photo, there is a figure in the mirror staring down at her kid. So close enough to bunk 11, that bunk 11 ghost did not like that. Now it's a very controlled situation. You just avoid bunk 11 and you'll never encounter a bunk 11 ghost, but most of the time, but that's probably our most grumpy guy. Bunk 11 ghost isn't evil. He's just kind of a jerk. He's he's a very possessive jerk. He's done nothing (laughs) evil. He just, well, he breaks things, but otherwise, but it's things that you kind of put on your, you you do to yourself because you put it on bunk 11. You mentioned that a few times that you do have staff staying there overnight. Do you have staff who live on the carrier full-time? No one lives there full-time. The Navy does require that we have someone on board 24-7. So there's always going to be someone on board. I myself spend the night two nights a week just to save on commuting time. I've got a timeshare stateroom, if you will, that I share with a few other staff people and we switch off nights of staying there. We have people who stay there for a week or two at once but uh, no permanent staff residence. At any given time, how many people are staying on the ship at night? Usually if there's nothing going on, somewhere between probably two to four, that's just a normal night with no evening programming going on. So I imagine that's got to be a bit eerie. I remember working uh, late in offices and it being me and maybe one or two other people in a large building and that being you know, a bit creepy. And that's a modern office. Yeah, you have a whole skyscraper to yourself and anywhere below the hangar deck, if you have no natural light, it is cave dark. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've been in a cave, you know what that means. It's like you can't you, you can't even know that your nose isn't on your face anymore because it's just that dark. So it's um, a little spooky, but you know, my stateroom has a heater and Wi-Fi and Netflix. So I just close the door and get down to your sleeping bag and you're good for the night. But you could take some really creepy pictures of yourself kind of going down to the bathroom because Hornet's nightlights are all red. because red light preserves your night vision so our battle lights are red Uh, but it it does make for a nice aesthetic when you're taking videos for your friends being like look where i am (laughs) i apologize if i'm getting this wrong did you have television shows over the last few years film on the hornet or am i mixing you up with somebody else nope that's us any any show that deals with ghosts we have probably been featured on it at least once there's the probably more well-renowned ones like ghost hunters taps to ghost adventures uh that team has been here twice we've of course we've been on other ones like fear factor because it's spooky um 
and a number of others. So we actually have at Venue Rentals, we like to list all the, the spooky things we have been featured in on our website, but World's Most Scariest Places, that sort of thing. So we've, we've been featured in media here and there. So as somebody who's actually you know, lives part-time on the ship, do you feel like the World's Scariest Place is a uh, earned or do you find that to be more comfortable than that would imply? I think it's haunted. I don't mm-hmm. think it's the scariest place um, because again, our ghosts aren't evil. You know, we don't right. have demons on board. Uh, we just don't. So yeah, I, I would rather take my museum. I would rather spend a whole month on my museum than I don't know, a night in Lep Castle or something like that. That's right. on elemental or something like that. that. Give me, give me Hornet any day. Uh, I'll take the 200 sailors and we get along well. We know how to interact with each other. We're good. Yeah. The limp mansion's got a, uh, <laughs> it's got a reputation <laughs> that uh... the devil hasn't visited Hornet. Thankfully. Yeah. Um, actually, interestingly, we do have some interesting myths that have evolved out of Hornets, the goodness of Hornets ghosts, if you will. Uh, we have stories where if we do too many investigations back to back to back, sometimes momentarily we'll get a little blip of something not not good. The theory is that ghost investigators, you know, if they are a little too into, into it and aren't doing it right, they can bring things with them. Our theory is that our Hornet ghosts, if they see something bad coming in, they'll take care of it. So if there's something bad, like we'll have one weekend, we're like, oh, that was actually um, really creepy coming out of the the box or the K2 or something was not signaling, not, not doing good things. Um, It'll be gone by the next time. No, not a problem. So with, with 200 sailors on board, they, they kind of clean house if needed. You've mentioned the K2 a few times for listeners who may not know. Could you describe what that is? Sure. Uh, The K2 meter is, it's a measuring equipment that electricians use. And it senses electromagnetic waves, which if you are in the ghost investigation world, ghosts are thought to emit, kind of have that sort of presence that can be noted by electrical changes in the air. So like that's kind of what they're made out of is electrical charges here or there. So that's one of the tools that could sense if there's a spirit nearby. Uh, You just kind of, you know, usually the K2 meters, you put them on a, against a wall to find the live wire. Well, if you're holding the K2 meter in the middle of a room, no live wires near you, and you have the little lights kind of go from red to flip to yellow to green, and there's literally nothing that could otherwise trigger it, well, you might have a spirit nearby hanging out near you. So I'm curious about something. I know electricians, when they use those, they have to move along to a few different planes to get a good reading. When the investigators are doing it, do they do the same thing? I'm sure there's different techniques. The method I usually see is you kind of just hold it stable and kind of let the world interact around you. You know, most of times you actually kind of set it on a desk and walk away. So there's no real chance that you could be manipulating it or something, kind of give it some space with with nothing around it, but a a stable surface to rest on. So, um, and then you, you know, when you talk to the ghost, you say, hey, go over to that thing over there. If you're close enough, the lights will uh, turn brighter and we can communicate that way with you. Let the ghost go to it. (laughs) So you've mentioned the uh, K2 meter, which it sounds like is a type of EMF meter. What are other tools that you've seen used? Flashlights are a good old standard. Um, those mag lights, the, the twisty tops mm-hmm. are the ones that work best. Um, our ghost investigation team uses a good amount of the tech that you see on most of the ghost shows. If you're a fan of the ghost shows, we, we try to kind of emulate that or at least test out that theory. We have uh, spirit boxes, had an obelisk, which these are the kind of things, uh, not the obelisk per se, but spirit boxes are the kind that jump really quickly through radio channels. And the theory is that ghosts can snag words in the radio channels and, and speak to you through the box. 
It's not my favorite because it's very noisy, but it's one of the tools that are in our arsenal. But yeah, I mean, pretty much if you're you know a fan of the Ghost Adventure Show or the Ghost Hunters Show, we we try to test out those tools that they say detects ghosts. We always fall back though on on people's senses, so that is the best tool we encourage. You know, use your listen, look, feel how you feel. If you feel kind of that creepy feeling of being watched or touched, then definitely let us know if you're in that tour group because sometimes they'll just go up on a and tug on a girl's ponytail. <laughs> because as established, some of the ghosts are jerks. Some of them are jerks, and you know, some of them get excited when they see a girl. Well, you know, you've been out at sea for 18 months. <laughs> it's true, it's true. Girls often get some attention on the ghost tours. <laughs> Hornet ghosts are a fun bunch of guys. It seems like you've got a very definite affection for the place and for the local ghosts. They they grow on you. You know, once you learn that they're they're cool, it's not the worst place to hang out in the dark. It still definitely gets creepy. Like I'm I'm not probably going to be going uh, spelunking on the ship at night by myself with just a flashlight because there's still that that spooky vibe. But it's not it's 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 not a dark place per se. I've gotten that spooky vibe looking at uh, historic cabins in the daylight. So yeah, I understand. <laughs> and you're going through sick bay in the middle of the night with nothing but your flashlight. And you're like, ah, haunted hospital. Okay. One other question. You'd mentioned that the executive officer is an unusual term in museums, but because this is a naval museum, you have it. Because the ship is still technically owned by the Navy, do you structure a lot of what you do based on the Navy? And is that a requirement of the Navy? It's not at all a requirement, honestly. I don't think they, they care too much so long as we're not sinking the ship underneath us. We have a kind of interesting balance here of honoring the military history while also acknowledging that to the general public, it has an element of role play to it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's 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 some lines you don't cross, some things are sacrosanct, but some things like titles and insignias and you know, we're introducing shirts coming up pretty soon with all our volunteer divisions. We have six to eight volunteer divisions, and each one's going to get a little insignia that's based on traditional Navy divisions insignia. And it's kind of towing that line of knowing when you can be playful and knowing when this is a a serious kind of uh, matter that should be treated with the respect of the military that sacrifice has put upon it. So, And how many permanent staff do you have? Yeah, so we we had a few more pre-COVID, but currently we are have about 30, about 14 full-time and 15 part-time. We also have a crew of on-call staff who help populate our educational programming and things like our ghost tours. They're not on the permanent payroll, but they come when they're uh, needed. And then we have probably, again, we had more pre-COVID volunteers, but we currently have probably around 200 volunteers serving in many different specific divisions of work that they do for us. That's a respectable size. Yeah, we're uh, we're solidly a middle Middle-sized museum in in a big museum body. Uh, When the aircraft carrier was operational as a naval vessel, what was the average crew complement? 3,500. It depended on the year. That is huge. (laughs) Yes. Well, modern carriers, super carriers before the last class went up to about 6,000 people on a single carrier. But yeah, 3,000 guys on our ship for 16 months straight, city at sea. I'm beginning to understand why my father joined the army and not the Navy. He's a lot like me. And the idea of being on a floating building that you can't get away from with that many people, I think would have uh, driven both of us a bit nuts. But the Navy had very good food in its defense. Also, any excuse to make a cake is what I've been learning. So a lot of cake was involved. (laughs) Are are you disparaging the proud army MREs? You know, I have seen them up close in person and I, uh, yes, I am. I've eaten them. I don't think anybody's particularly a big fan of them. (laughs) Navy got, I was going to say fresh food, but that would be a lie. They got food that wasn't coming out of a packet, mostly. Oh, I guess one thing I forgot, not to 
keep on going, but yeah. Hornet's uh, nickname, the Grey Ghost. Oh, it's not really uh, Hornet herself is haunted, but it is a fun story I like to tell. So Hornet, it was not the first Hornet to serve in World War II. Hornet CV-8, which was the eighth aircraft carrier America built, was the first Hornet to serve in World War II. She served in the first half of the war. CV-8 did things like the uh, historic Doolittle Raid and other major battles, but she was sunk in 1942 in the Battle of Coral Seas. Now, when she was sunk, our Hornet was being built. Literally, her keel had just been laid, and she was originally to be called the USS Kearsarge, but when that Hornet sank, our Hornet inherited the title as is Navy tradition. So Hornet was re- was built as USS Hornet, CV-12, the 12th carrier America has built and launched. And when she came back fighting into the Pacific theater, named the Hornet, as the legend goes, the uh, Imperial Japanese Navy looked across, saw a ship called Hornet. And thus we were given our name, the Grey Ghost, because we were the, the ghost of the previous Hornet coming back to fight again in the war. And it's a fun nickname to be able to have, so... That's a very good nickname for really anything that's gray, but I think a naval ship, it's especially good. We, we, were, we are gray. We were still gray. It's been our color. <laughs> so Well, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. No problem. Happy to join in. It's a fun subject matter. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Have a good evening. Thank you. You as well. If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky!